Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the story changes with Jim Wilson's resignation. Could we see a blue wave in the American midterm elections? And could Hamilton see the closure of its safe injection site? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Late last week, it was revealed that uh, former uh, Economic Development Minister for the uh, Ford government, Jim Wilson, uh, was going to be resigning, citing what we were told were addiction issues. Uh, Global News discovered yesterday uh, that it was actually due to allegations of sexual inappropriate behavior. Uh, that's not the only person. Apparently somebody in the, in the advisory capacity in the Ford administration also had to step aside for the very same reason. Shockwaves through Queen's Park. What are the ramifications? Well, let's talk to Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilford Laurier University. Barry, good morning. Thank you so much for the time today. Uh, good morning, Bill. I, I understand this is, you know, it's innocent until proven guilty, and we're told that there are in- independent investigations going on. But at this stage, how much of the, does the public have a right to know about what's going on and why? Oh, in theory, the public has a right to know everything in practice. Of course, the government wants to limit anything embarrassing. Uh, so it was dribbled out in uh, in the way that it was done. Look, the long-term implications, I, I, I'm critical of Ford in many ways, but when he sees problems, he does seem to be able to get rid of people. We saw it with regard to uh, uh, Tanya Allen, the other um, leadership contestant who actually ended up supporting him. But when uh, th- embarrassing things about her were revealed, he just cut her, cut her loose and uh, kept her out of the caucus. He's doing the same thing in this kind of situation. Wilson obviously is a big deal because Wilson uh, is perhaps the most senior uh, member, of, if I remember correctly, certainly one of the most senior members of the Tory caucus. He's, he's been happened. there since 1990. Yeah, with a lot of new people, uh, the voice of experience is important, but he knew that, in fact, this kind of thing just had to go. They dribbled it out, so at first it sounded like it was just alcohol. Now it sounds like it's more than just alcohol. It's interesting that his executive director... Or pretty early on, I mean, we're still talking about the early months of his administration, pretty early on uh, was also an embarrassment. But it does seem that Ford is able to, to cut loose people that are, um, that are embarrassing to his administration. That's something that the, our neighbor to the south, who's also going to have, a, I think, an interesting evening today, uh, did, did not learn. He kind of kept, kept people around because of their loyalty. Um, in terms of the uh, ramifications for the cabinet, there's you know some changes going around. I'm trying to think: is it Todd Smith that's picking up Wilson's portfolio, and there's some other minor shuffles. Most of the people involved in the shuffles, frankly, I'm not even that familiar with. They aren't major ministries. Um, I think if there were problems, uh, Ford is doing it the right way and just kind of getting this behind him as quickly as he can. We are not going to remember this four years from today. The other concern that I've heard anyway from some circles is the fact that the Premier himself has not spoken out on this. There was a press release issued from the Premier's office, but uh, the, the Premier himself has not stepped forward and talked to reporters about that. Is that a problem? Oh, they're trying to low-key it. I mean, I guess they hoped it would just sort of stop at alcohol, which was the initial suggestion with regard to Wilson. If he's got a drinking problem, that presumably has been known by people for quite a while. And I'm sure um, that the uh, the Premier knew about that when he appointed him to the Cabinet. But he was such a senior person, he had to go into the Cabinet. Um, Look, uh, yeah, this isn't, these kind of stories are never easy to handle, and I don't want to make it sound like this is a plus for the Conservatives. It obviously isn't. Uh, I just don't think that it's going to have as long-lasting an impact as it would have if the Premier kept trying to deny it. He's not denying anything. He's just basically trying to keep the publicity about it as low-key. At some, thing, some point, I think, more might be said a little bit. Um, it's interesting to me that, in fact, he, um, his judgment about the executive director, Wilson, he had to put in the cabinet. Um, the, um, the executive director was somebody who presumably was closer to him personally, and he knew, I don't know the person at all, 
uh, but that indeed he clearly had was not aware that that person also had issues. There may be other people with issues down the road, but at least he's doing. Given that there was a the, this this negative circumstance, I think he's at least now doing the best he can to to not make it a permanent stain on the government. And I suspect he'll be successful in that. You you always wonder about the ramifications on the individuals involved. Uh, the, the individual you're talking about here was the executive director of uh, issues management. Is a, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Kimber. Uh, the allegations, such as we know anyway, uh, is that he sent inappropriate text messages. I'm not exactly sure what those are. I assume they have some evidence of that. Uh, but uh, Jim Wilson's a different story, as you mentioned, Barry. I mean, he's been in the Ontario legislature since 1990, uh, served under Mike Harris. He was in the cabinet there with Ernie Eves. He was in the cabinet there. And, of course, as you mentioned, a senior position. Now, he's resigned that position, and we don't know if he was pushed or if he did that willingly. He's also resigned his place in the caucus. Is that surprising to you? They're just trying to put as much distance between. I, I, there may even be more coming out on Wilson. Uh, this is the best way to kind of insulate themselves from further revelations. But the thing that's interesting about Wilson, and I don't know, I'm not, I don't know who the uh, the people at Queens Park are drinking with. My hunch is that people probably did know about Wilson's drinking problem. The sexual allegations, um, maybe not, and that may have been a surprise. So my hunch is that it wasn't really the drinking that was the problem. The drinking was the cover story for what came later. Um, and that, um, yeah, look, it, it, as I just mentioned, it's, these are never good stories. Now that it's come to the point it has uh, um, for its handling as best he can. The fact that with Kimber, though, Kimber would have been a, a personal appointment. Kimber would have been somebody yeah. that Ford was connected to, because that's a pretty senior position within, the, within his immediate staff operation. Um, and uh, I guess there may be some question about whether, whether he asks enough people enough questions or vets the people around him sufficiently. Maybe if there are more stories like this in the future, if this is the end of it, I don't think it's a big deal. Um, if there are more stories like this and it becomes a pattern, um, who knows? He will sit as an independent. That's a very conservative, I mean, small C conservative area that uh, Jim Wilson represents up there. That's the Bear, the Collingwood Blue Mountain uh, area, upper run of that area. And uh, uh, independents tend not to uh, usually get reelected. Obviously, the party machine will roll in there, and you have to wonder what his political future is going to be, no, notwithstanding whatever this uh, investigation proves or, or yeah, I, indicates. My, my hunch is his career's. Pr- I mean, he's fairly senior anyway. My hunch is his career is probably at an end. Um, it's not if this would be a very different world if, in fact, we were in a minority situation or if the conservatives had a very narrow lead in the legislature. They can afford to lose him and, frankly, to lose a few more and still in no way jeopardize their situation legislatively. Uh, It's too bad for him. I guess it's too bad that he's had this drinking problem. But the drinking problem didn't just happen yesterday. The drinking problem's been there, and I've no doubt, given that he's been around for so long, that people were aware of it. And Ford put him in the cabinet in a fairly important post anyway. The Kimber thing is uh, is different, and that's suggesting that um, Ford really had no serious. He could he had some uh, some choice as to what kind of portfolio Wilson would go into, but he probably had no choice that he was going to go into the cabinet. Um, with regard to Kimber, um, that was somebody that he appointed without having adequately vetted him, and it, that makes me wonder who else is surrounding him in terms of advisors that may not be appropriately vetted. But we'll see. Maybe maybe this is the end of it. I wouldn't be surprised, however, if it was a problem with Kimber, there may be other people, too. Well, is, is this the morning in the Queen's Park there where they're actually uh, maybe vetting some of those CVs again and saying, let's, let's double-check some of these uh, credentials? Well, look, you know, people go drinking with other people. So if, some, if people are regular habitual drinkers, and there's, you know, drinking up to a point is, isn't, shouldn't be a problem anyway. But if people are habitual drinkers, there will be people that will know. If people are start, starting to come on, in this case, I guess it was to a, a male staffer, 
Um, if people do that, that's not the kind of thing that they advertise publicly. So the, um, it may be harder to find out. But yeah, I have a hunch that there will be lots of people now being asked questions about what the heck is going on, not just with Kimber and, uh, uh, you know, and Wilson, who are gone, but perhaps with other people there as well. But if Kimber was admitted into, you know, into a fairly senior position, given this problem, it, that to me suggests that he wasn't the vetting and review process wasn't adequate, and uh, there, um, this may not be the end of it. But I, I don't want to, you know, speculate anything beyond that. No, I don't want to go as to what we might find. But yeah, you get the sense that there's another shoe to drop here at some point. Could be. Yeah. Listen, while I've got you, Beer, i got to ask you about what's going to be happening down in the States today. Oh, Obviously, sure, we're watching with great interest uh, with the midterm elections. And, and, and now Donald Trump is not going to be impacted. This is not for president, for people that are just following this on a cursory level. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of, at play here when it comes to the power structure in, in, the, in the United States political scene. No, he's not on the ballot, but he's absolutely going to be impacted, whether he claims to be or not. You know, when I got the call from your staff people a little while ago about uh, being on this morning, that's what I thought the storyline was going to be, because that's clearly the big deal, especially for me, because I teach American government at, mm-hmm. uh, at, at Laurier. Uh, look, this, if things go as they're expected to go, I'm not sure how big the swing is going to be, whether it's a wave or not. Uh, we can start quibbling about what defines a wave. Um, I don't think the world for Donald Trump will ever be as good as it's been up until now after tonight's results. Assuming the uh, Democrats pick up at least 23 seats in the House, I think they're going to be much closer to 40, maybe even more than 40. Um, and that indeed the very passive nature of the Republican, forgetting about the fact that the Democrats will now probably have a majority in the House, perhaps not, the Senate will be close, but there are those few red states, uh, North Dakota, Tennessee, and Texas, they're all ruby red, very strong Republican states. Assuming those are held by the Republicans, um, the, the, the Senate will, will stay in, in Republican hands. But the House is likely to swing. It's actually a great night for the Democrats. To re- Remember, the, the cohort of, of senators coming up this year, a third of the Senate comes up every two years. Mm-hmm. It happens that this particular cohort is three-quarters Democratic. That's why people never thought the Democrats really had a chance to make many gains and would be lucky just to hold on. They're going into it with basically three-quarters of the cohort, 25 to 8, in terms of the, uh, of the, the, the full-term seats. There are a couple of vacancies also being filled. Um, so the Democrats are going to win three-quarters of the seats in the Senate, but Trump will claim it a victory because they didn't lose any of the, at least they, they'll lose a couple, perhaps Nevada and Arizona, but they're not going to perhaps make a net loss because they'll likely pick up North Dakota and will hopefully, from their point of view, hang on to a, a couple of others. But those are all states they should win big, and frankly, most of those are very much horse races. The House, however, is a very different scenario. And what I think will be interesting isn't just that the Democrats are going to have subpoena power, so there's going to be lots of investigations of Trump, just as there were when the Republicans controlled the the House of Representatives and the Senate during the last six years of of Obama's presidency. And we'll see. I don't know what kind of dirt they're going to unearth, but I think there's going to be stuff. I think we're going to hear about his taxes. I think we're going to hear more about his contacts with the Russians. I think we're going to hear a lot more about his business practices. Um, We'll see. I, I don't, again, want to speculate yet about that either, but I think the Democrats will be in a position to unearth all sorts of things, uh, should, should there be dirt there, and I frankly suspect that there is. But my hunch is that in addition to that, Republicans who've been fearful of Trump because he had so much sway with the base Republican voters, the kind of people that show up in Republican primaries, they've been afraid of him and they, they, know, they know about his shortcomings just as most other people do. This is very much the emperor's new clothes in terms of nobody wants to talk about the obvious. But I think you're going to find that the Republicans... 
a little too late in the day for them because they're no longer going to be in control of the House, but that some of the Republicans are going to develop a spine as well, and they're going to start asking questions because they are going to come to understand that while Trump was terrific in terms of helping them preserve their nomination in Republican primaries, that he's toxic in so many areas. There's lots of places across the states where, in fact, um, they normally are Republican seats that the, the, uh, the Republicans are probably going to lose. And um, so it's not just the Democrats are going to be in power in at least one legislature, but that, in fact, Republicans, I think, are going to realize that tying their, their flag to Donald Trump so closely and not being prepared to question him at all, because loyalty more is, is profoundly important to him. And he, he goes after a couple of Republicans who spoke critically of him this um, Sanford in South Carolina and Flake in um, in Arizona, their political careers are over because they came. They were either defeated in primaries or came to realize they couldn't win their primaries with with Trump opposed to them. I think that kind of blindness to his successes is going to be questionable. And the irony is, the economy is great, and that's what he should be talking about. And what's he talking about? This caravan, quote unquote, which isn't really caravan at all. This caravan of of desperate people leaving Honduras and Guatemala that are some eight nine hundred miles away from the American border. But he he suggests our our infestation that are bringing crime and drugs. I, I mean, it, it's really quite absurd what the the narrative that uh, Trump has been able to prevail with uh, during the American election. And I think a lot of Republicans are realizing he is not good for their party. But and and that's the thing that, that I find just staggering, really. Uh, he had a, he had a, a card to play here, and that's the economy. I mean, you know, to, to go back to James Carville, it's the economy, stupid, and and he's got that. Now, it's not great in all parts of the country, but the numbers are still pretty impressive. Yeah, he's, he's tossed that aside, and he's gone to the fear mongering again. That's just him. His advice. He always needs enemies. He always needs excessive rest. Look, um, as I'm sure I've mentioned on your show before, he's basically BS'd his way through life. He's always been successful, basically telling stories and bluffing and lying about this, that, and the everything. And he won the election, although you know, with three million fewer votes than Hillary. But he won the election, ignoring what people, the advisors, said around him. So he just basically works on his gut. Whatever he feels is going to work, he goes along with, regardless of what he says. There were plenty of advisors that told him that his pitch during these last week should have been about the economy. He couldn't control some of the other events that occurred, particularly with regard to the, that Republican-supporting bomber that was sending bombs to people and some of the other events in Pittsburgh. That he couldn't control. But he could have refocused on the economy because the economy is good. It isn't just because of him. The economy was also growing at the same pace under, under Obama and his, in his, most of his administration. But it was a good story to tell. He, but he, Trump knows better. Trump is basic. This is the way he's lived his whole life, ignoring people around him, thinking he's the smartest guy in the room, whoever else, whatever else people are saying. And uh, I, I don't think this is going to end well for the Republican Party. Barry, thanks as always. I really appreciate your perspective. We'll uh, be up late again tonight watching this with, with great interest. We'll appreciate the time, and uh, I'm sure we'll analyze the, your results in the next couple of days. Appreciate it. Good we'll talk soon. Bye-bye now. Barry Kay from uh, uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, we touched briefly on uh, the U.S. midterm elections uh, in the last segment, uh, but we want to bore down a little bit more into this because of the implications uh, of what could be happening tonight. And again, in many pundits' minds, this is still very much up in the air. Joining us to talk about this is Melissa Hausman, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Melissa, thank you so much for uh, your time on a very busy day today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Some, uh, you know, I've heard, and I'm probably sure you have too, some people saying, oh, this is Canada, that's the United States. Why should we pay any attention to what goes on in their, their political arena? But I, I guess the short answer to that is, well, like it or not, we're tied to the hip to the United States in very many ways. That's true. And frankly, what happens today, if the House goes majority Democratic and 
to me, equally, if not more importantly, if the majority of governorships go Democratic, those have a lot of implications for what happens in the 2020 elections and actually the 2022 elections for Congress. Look, talk to me about the gubernatorial races, Melissa, because it's not getting a whole lot of attention. Uh, and, and you've raised a very interesting point in the in the, the the larger scale of things, how important that is to have that, that kind of balance, because the Democrats really got kicked around in gubernatorial elections over the last couple of elections. Right. And the Republicans have held the majority of governorships for quite some time. And as we know, after 2016, the Republicans controlled uh, state legislatures in the South for the first time ever. So that was a big historic shift. The reason the gubernatorial elections are so important, and if the majority does go to the Democrats for the first time in a while, the states are the ones that draw the House districts. And so if they could hold on to those governorships in 2020, then the governors are in the position to sign off on or veto and and also, of course, help appoint the members of these redistricting commissions. And those would be felt in the 2022 House elections. So that is hugely important. Now, we just went through, uh, on a very local level here in Hamilton, of course, ward redistribution in our last municipal election, and, and it was contentious, to say the least. But it's it's almost it's almost part of the political scenery down in the states, isn't it, Melissa, that they redraw these? Now, some people want to use the word gerrymandering, and that's a pretty ugly word. But they, so they, they you know, it's, it's a little more refined to simply say redraw the boundaries. But what they do, essentially, is redraw them to, to their own benefit, whoever political party, whichever political party is in charge. You're absolutely right. That's the case. And I should point out, I come from Massachusetts, which invented gerrymandering around the time of the Constitution. So it's a very old practice in the United States. And, you know, the district shape can be, frankly, bizarre as long as purportedly equal numbers of voters are spread out across them. And, yeah, it's been a huge cottage industry for lawyers bringing those things to the Supreme Court. It is a very contentious issue. Well, and they probably are should draw the lines in pencil because if somebody else takes over after the next election, they just say, yeah, yeah, that's not happening anymore. There, that, there, that's a good point. <laughs> there's another, another element here that uh, that was a, a big deal during the Obama administration in, in those two elections uh, that I'm not hearing a whole lot about, but uh, while watching MSNBC last night, Rachel Maddow brought it up, uh, and it's about uh, voter suppression. Uh, and again, that's that's uh, some of the chicanery that goes on during election times where, uh, you know, they, they make it uh, almost impossible for people to actually vote, I guess, with the expectation that they're going to get frustrated and go home and not cast a ballot. Right. And again, it's a function of the states running the elections in the U.S. and not just the states, but of course, the towns and the cities. So one can get away with an awful lot that one typically can't get away with in other in other systems. Um, and we know that already in two very high-profile states, um, Texas with Ted Cruz and uh, Georgia, where Stacey Abrams could be the first African-American governor there, uh, that there have been reports of votes somehow miraculously switching in the ballot box from democrats to republicans um so that's that's quite bizarre and it's very important to watch because sure we've already seen record turnout in the early voting but on the other hand if the machines aren't recording them accurately then you've got a real problem and and that's the mishmash that i i guess is is the political system here as you say it's a federal election yet they're controlled by by local constituencies and and there's different voting methods in different states 
Yes, exactly. And unfortunately, no method is perfect. And as we've seen throughout recent history since 2000, anybody who's determined to thwart the transparent working of of that system can, in fact, do so. The other thing that's interesting here is that California uses mail-in ballots, and of course, we're going to be hearing from them towards the end. So that could potentially delay some of the reporting if all the ballots haven't been counted yet, if, if the House is close in terms of the number of seats to be changed. In other words, this is going to be a long night. It could well be, and unfortunately, it could be even longer than one night. I mean, again, we don't think so right now, but there is that potential out there, depending on what happens in California. If there is a, I don't even know if I want to use the phrase blue wave, but let's just assume uh, we'll, we'll, we'll think that the Democrats do take over the House again. And, and you know, there's, there's some numbers that we can crunch here in a couple of seconds to determine whether or not that's going to happen. But let's talk about the impact that that would have. Uh, and I mentioned just in our preamble, Melissa, well, for, for instance, the trade deal. Uh, the USMCA trade deal that is yet to be ratified. That's one of the first things the Congress, the new Congress, is going to have to do. Right. Uh, what would a Democratic uh, Congress look like as opposed to what we've had for the last couple of years? Well, I don't think it would actually be a, a problem for Canada because, again, it's likely that the Senate is going to stay Republican by the thin margin it has already been. So there could be more, say, um, statements against the trade deal and such but personally i don't i wouldn't expect any any grave harm or any grave issues to happen but again um lacking a crystal ball (laughs) somebody could try to bring something up i suppose but but i don't really see that being undone I, i think that's on track to pass well one of the other twists i found interesting uh a couple of the democratic contenders that were running uh were questioning uh during the last session of congress uh, Trump's uh, authority to actually impose tariffs. Of course, he used the, the you know the the specter of uh, national security to impose the steel and aluminum tariffs in, on Canada and Mexico and a, and a couple of other countries as well. But is there a possibility that uh, that there could be a pushback from a Democratic Congress that says that's not your job, that's our job? There could be, but again, typically that would have to involve the Senate as well and. Um if we assume the Senate stays the party that it is, I don't see much change on that. Um, and, you know, there is some some authority there, and there is some history in terms of what kind of tariff it is for the executive branch to act in the way it does. I mean, there is some some wiggle room there for the executive. Yeah, and that would be a long, drawn-out court battle, I would think, even if well, they tried to do something like that. For sure. The other thing, and the the elephant in the room, uh, if, if I could use that expression, uh, that not too many people have talked about over the last little while, of course, is the Mueller investigation. I think people seem to have forgotten about that, but it is still ongoing. Oh, yeah. uh, and my understanding, Melissa, is that they're expecting to have a, a final report, I would think, from uh, Robert Mueller probably before the end of the year. Uh, talk to us about the impact that a Democratic Congress would have once that report is received. Right. Well, we know that some Democrats are pledging to push forth with a rather aggressive uh, type of questioning. Um, Unfortunately, at the moment, I don't think we have a whole lot of information on what might happen. But assuming the Mueller report is damaging to the president and some of those around him, that would certainly be a factor to, uh, let's say, put the president and those around him on notice. So it could be disquieting for them. 
the uh, the talk of impeachment has really died down. Is, is that a strategy by the Democrats to just kind of lay low and, and not try to rile people up? Well, here's the thing that's important to know. Impeachment in this day and age, I mean, yes, it probably meant something back when Andrew Johnson was impeached, you know, at the end of the Civil War. But in this day and age, it really doesn't mean a whole lot because presidents just carry on as they can because of their political capital and their their staffs, etc. An impeachment vote is only half of the process. And the Senate has never in the U.S. history convicted a sitting president. So that second piece has to happen in order to get rid of a president. So frankly, I don't think impeachment, even if, if the House were to do it, would mean a whole lot for President Trump. It's almost symbolic then, isn't it? Exactly. Without that second part of the process, it is very symbolic. And and there's no way. I mean, you know, go back to the Bill Clinton example. I mean, he was obviously impeached by the Congress at that time. By the House, yeah. Yeah, but it died in the Senate. Yes, exactly. And and, and he so, carried and he carried on. And as if I recall, he yeah. had he had about a 68 percent approval rating while that was going on. So uh, right. I, I don't think anybody was actually going to jump all over him as a result of that. So right. maybe that's one of the reasons why this has died down. But they can certainly make uh, life uncomfortable for the Trump administration if, they, in fact, they do find in the Mueller report that there was some uh, political wrongdoing going on. Yes, and financial wrongdoing. And we know that some in the House are talking about re-raising the emoluments clause issue about the current president profiting from deals with his hotels and all that sort of stuff. So, sure, they can distract him. Um, and make life difficult for him. That could certainly be the case. Somebody was asking me, I just got an email about the, the, this the other day, uh, about foreign and international uh, responsibilities, and specifically about NATO, because Trump's been pretty rough on NATO uh, in the last couple of meetings. And uh, but but and the, he wondered if the Congress changing uh, from, Demo- from Republican to Democrat would have much of an impact. But f- f- by and large, foreign uh, issues and, and international issues are, are not the, the purview of the Congress, are they? Well, in and of the, in the sense that they are, it's much more the Senate. The House is considered to be much more domestically focused. Yeah. And again, if the Senate stays, then no change at all. And, and obviously, some of the things that have gone on with uh, with Trump's demands for NATO, et cetera, that's that's something that's going to have to be done. Uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, obviously, is is the one yeah. that would have some purview of that. And it looks as if everything's probably going to stay the same there. It looks the same, yes. What about a stalemate circumstance here, Melissa? I mean, if you have a Democratic uh, uh, House of Representatives and a, and a Republican Senate, uh, that sort of thing oftentimes can lead to paralyza- paralyzation when it comes to legislation that's being passed. Uh, and it, it's ironic because Trump has already blamed the Democrats for everything that did not happen that he promised two years ago. Yet the Republicans had the majority in both houses. Then that change, uh, there could be a real stalemate and a, and a real logjam of legislation if that occurs. Right. And of course, the thing that's interesting about the U.S. system with the House, Senate and president is that typically you have at least two of those institutions being of opposite parties. So it's really been the case more often than not, say, since about the 1980s, that at least one of those institutions is of the other party. So, yeah, paralysis is unfortunately um, part of the game. The other thing is, of course, that the Republican-dominated Congress, you know, once both houses switched to Republican, refused to act on Obama's Supreme Court nominations, mm-hmm. refused to act on his immigration proposals. So paralysis really doesn't depend on which 
which party um it can actually it, it's it's a function of wit of the use of political tactics and whether the the leadership in the house and the senate are willing to do anything so sure the house could maybe slow things down but on the other hand um trump hasn't been getting a whole lot through congress he hasn't he doesn't seem to have been in so interested in working with him he's just kind of ignored them and been doing things by executive fiat which you know works as long as he's president but the minute he's out of office the next president can undo the executive orders if there is a change uh, tonight and and the democrats take over the house obviously we've been used to paul ryan as the speaker of the house as the republican uh, the lead republican in situations ryan isn't even running again no. uh, but if the democrats in there is it a, a, a safe assumption that chuck schumer would be the guy uh, in a situation i know he's a senator i guess i'm say but who, right. who who's who's where's the leadership coming from then from if the democrats take over well, it's likely to be Nancy Pelosi again. Again? I know that there are some folks who would like to topple her, but in terms of what the the party leader is there to do, particularly in terms of raising money for candidates of her party, she has been stellar and phenomenal. So it would be very hard for some Democrats in the House to make the case that she should be shelved or pushed aside. I know there are younger, newer folks who would like to do that, but she has done an awful lot for her party members in that house. So that would be an interesting fight, and we can expect that to happen. But I would I would assume she would win that fight. Well, and, and those discussions are probably going, are going on as we speak, or they probably yeah. already have. Yes. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the political, uh, you know, you know, machinations that are going yeah. on are, are decided long before that. There's, there's politics within politics, isn't there? Always. <laughs> so, talk to us about about how Trump will respond to this. Uh, I mean, we've already heard some of the the rumblings uh, from some of the rallies that uh, the president has gone on that he's already talking about the election possibly being rigged, and we heard that two years ago. Uh, even yesterday, Rush Limbaugh still uh, maintains that Hillary Clinton rigged the last election, uh, which finds somewhat amazing. I mean, she rigged it so she could lose. I'm, I'm not quite sure where Limbaugh is coming from on this. But, yeah, but how do you rig something to lose? Yeah, I, I well, I'm not quite sure, but obviously he got a big ovation from the crowd when he said that, so it, it, it resonates with them. But but obviously, you know, when the dust settles on this, I mean, the president's going to have to deal with a new circumstance here. Yes, yes, he will. Um, and and you're right. He, I think, his rather desperate tactics over the last week or so in the last few days have really shown that he is aware he's likely to lose the house that that very um horrible ad that they've been running about you know supposedly the democrats letting all these um you know criminals in and all that sort of stuff which of course the networks have pulled and yes they're the statements of both trump and sessions about their voter fraud well you know the only voter fraud we've seen so far is with example, Texas and Georgia. Yeah, Texas and Georgia. And those are Democratic votes being changed over to Republican ones. So show us where the Democratic fraud is happening because nobody's seen it. You mentioned Jeff Sessions, Melissa. Let's talk a little bit about his future. Uh, so there's <laughs> lots of speculation that, that as soon as this midterm election season is over, uh, that session gets deep six. The, the president's run out of patience with it. I think he probably ran out of patience about a year and a half or so ago with him. But it didn't seem to be optically prudent for him to do anything about it. Does this basically give him uh, the opportunity right now to to shuffle people around and get rid of a few folks that he's not happy with? 
Oh, sure. I, he doesn't really seem to need any pretext. It's, it's, it's very strange with him. There's been a constant parade out of the, the West Wing. So, sure, if he wants to, if he decides one day that Sessions isn't doing what he wants, then he could start the, the really sort of tacky process he uses, which is to start tweeting um, and all that about getting rid of somebody, even as, as that person is doing their own job and trying to carry out the president's wishes and demands. So, yes, there's speculation that a number of folks could be uh, on the hot seat. One just never knows. It it could be or it could be just speculation. It it just depends on where Trump is at on a particular day. Well, it was widely accepted that Lindsey Graham was uh, was auditioning for the job during the Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, if, in fact, they do pull the uh, the trap door, I guess, on Sessions, I think he'd love to get that gig. But this is an opportunity yeah. after this the midterms. Obviously, the, the next big goal uh, for both parties at this stage is going to be uh, the major election in two years. And now Trump has never stopped campaigning. So, I mean, I, I don't know if we're going to see a whole lot of uh, a different strategy from his standpoint. But is he's, I, I guess if he's going to lose the House, I'm not so sure he's actually going to take that as a message from the American people. But it, will this actually lead him towards circling himself now with those that are going to be loyal to him? Yes, very likely. And not just if he loses the House. If he loses the majority of governorships, that's a double whammy, and I would think it would make him very insecure. Um, and that's that's never a good thing with him. Um, he tends to lash out and behave badly. <sighs> It's going to be interesting to see how he responds over the next couple of days, obviously, if they, these sure things will. go the way they are. What what should we look for tonight? For those of us that don't want to stay up till 3 in the morning, <laughs> which is usually when I get up to go to work anyway, so I may just, you know, when the thing's over, just shower and come right into the radio station here. But uh, are, are there bellwethers we can look for to say, aha, that's, that's a trend right there? Like you, you, you know, we've all mentioned this idea of a blue wave. Uh, at what point in the evening will we be able to call this a wave or, or, or an indication that, yes, this is happening the way we thought it would? Well, I would say by 10 p.m. or so, we'll know at least the East Coast states and the Midwest states. One issue that's been raised is that California uses mail-in registration, and they've got a number of contentious House races. So theoretically, if the House were close, um, it could take a while. It could actually take days for California to count its mail-in ballots. But in terms of both the House and the governorships, we are expecting a lot of the pickup to come, um, you know, from east to west, from east and midwest. So I would say hopefully we'll have a sense by 10 p.m. But if there are big issues with how the vote, how the machines are being implemented, how the regulations are being done, and if we're seeing fraud and corruption there, then again, things could take a few days more to sort that out. So it really kind of depends how this all works out today and tonight. Well, uh, put on the coffee. It's going to be a long one, yeah, I think. exactly. Melissa, thank you so much for the time today. really appreciate your perspective on this. Sure thing. I appreciate the time. Take care. That's uh, Melissa Thanks. Hausman, of course, professor of political science up at Carleton University, originally, though, from Massachusetts, and uh, very much in tune with the U.S. political system. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a, a controversial project, and I think a much-needed project, uh, that has been ongoing uh, in the downtown area. Uh, unfortunately, the funding has run out, and this whole thing may dry up by the end of November. We are talking, of course, about the overdose prevention site, 
uh, that is located in downtown. Uh, Jason Farr is the counselor for that area for Ward 2. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about the uh, future of the uh, program. Jay, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about where you are with this right now. This is a, a situation that uh, some great community partners came together on, Urban Core, the uh, the Shelter Health Network, uh, Hamilton Public Health, all involved in this. Uh, you had the hardest time trying to find a place to, to locate this, and the, there's a temporary site right now. The money's running out. Uh, the outlook does not look great right now, Jay. Um, right, and, and you know what? And let me open, Bill, if you don't mind. I'll get to your question in a moment, but yeah, you, you hit it off the top, and it, uh, it it's something I think that's really important, and especially given the number of doors I just knocked on, all of us just knocked on. But I want to thank the downtowners, the Hamilton public, those businesses, those residents, of course, council, for the overwhelming support for what is now existing until the end of November officially, officially uh, uh, a temporary safe consumption site. Uh, far, far outweighing uh, uh, the few that I've heard from over the course of it opening some six months ago uh, with respect to concerns. And, and you know, that that's an unofficial survey, uh, although clearly with council support, almost unanimous support, uh, from the beginning, and then all these wonderful agencies that have stepped up. It is, it's overwhelming. It's heartwarming. Is this, was it surprising? No. Because there was a time, there was a time not too long ago, uh, you know, where the, I don't want that kind of thing in my backyard, but people seem to get it. I think they understand what this is all about. Well, certainly. And by you saying so, as, as someone who's on the radio every day talking about the issues and you being supportive, it, it just, it just, uh, it, it brought to mind that we were it, it, off to a, a tumultuous start trying to find a location for the agency. And, and so to answer your question, yeah, I was a bit nervous going in, uh, because you couldn't find a, a, a tenant or a landlord. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, you know, since the last five months have occurred at a six month temporary site, the, the support has been overwhelming in the community. But where we are is a very good question because we had, of course, the reports yesterday and, and we've been keeping a close eye on this, uh, with its current location on Rebecca Street at the old bus terminal downtown. Mm-hmm. And yes, at the end of November, uh, for what we know today, um, the $116,300 in funding runs out from the province um, uh, for the Urban Core Social uh, Health Network uh, 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 location. Now, that said, uh, since looking at that story and since talking to your producer, Elizabeth, yesterday, I did reach out to our health department to give you an update even on that update. And they say, quote, the province is moving ahead with a consumption and treatment model, end quote. Uh, they're calling it a CTS. Uh, and this is, I think, very positive news. We heard and read in the article yesterday that our health minister uh, in Ontario needed another 30 days to get uh, her ducks in a row. This is something we now know that the province is working on. And what the CTS emphasizes is uh, a very close alignment with local agencies, which we already have, quite obviously, working with the temporary site. And these are the agencies that provide the support services or wraparound supports uh, bill and still at the same time with this CTS provincial model offering safe consumption on site was just still not 100% sure on what it means for Hamilton but I think it's a it's a positive sign and one of the things that they've said the province has said and what has been shared to me by our health department who the province was talking to is that they will continue to allow the temporary sites to operate while the new CTS models get vetted and ultimately approved. Okay, because that's 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 good news. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not you know carved in stone yet, but there seems to be some indications that, that things may work out here. 
because it was looking a little antsy there. I mean, even during the, the provincial election campaign in the springtime, and, and subsequent to that with the Premier's comments, that uh, we, he doesn't believe in these sites. He just wants people to get off the drugs. Well, that's a pretty simplistic approach to this. This, uh, as, as a number of medical people have talked to us about, and you have, uh, with the research you've done on this, have m- m- imparted on this program, this is part of that cure. This is a way for that to start to happen. It's one of the steps along the way and a very important one. Absolutely. And with the original comments from the province, once elected, we were all a little bit, those who support, and quite obviously, as I mentioned off the top, there are many, uh, this model of safe consumption for those unfortunately addicted in our community and other communities. Uh, I was I was a bit skeptical, to be honest with you. And so, you know, sharing this and relating this to you and the listeners of CHML today, I'm, I'm uh, taking a much more uh, positive outlook. And I'm, I'm actually thankful and grateful that uh, the provincial government, Christine Elliott, uh, at the head of the health ministership, uh, had said that they want to look into it further. They're doing their due diligence. Well, clearly they have. They've come up with a, an approach that still allows for the consumption, but ties in more closely with you know these wraparound services, or, or at least makes that wraparound service focus more official. That's not to say that Hamilton Urban Corps and the Social Health Network haven't already been doing that, and that's something obviously we learned in the uh, recent media update yesterday with, you know, uh, about, I think it was 1,800 visits, Bill, in less than five months, and only 17 overdoses on site, no deaths uh, with respect to the facility that we have running, the one temporary facility that we have running downtown. So it's clear that they're focused on this, and they're keeping an open mind on this, and they have clearly articulated at least to our health department with time which i'm sharing with you now uh some support for you know thinking outside the box with 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 what clearly is a crisis even more so obviously in hamilton with an average 72 percent higher than we have with opioid related deaths across the province so uh, i'm appreciative of this as always the devil's in the details and we don't know any of the details yet but it sounds from what you were told yesterday that this actually might be an enhanced uh, version of, of what's already existing there. Well, it sounds like they're trying to make official that second piece of, you know, it's one thing to just have a, a room where people can safely uh, I- inject uh, uh, drugs or, or consume drugs because we went from safe injection site, remember that terminology, to safe consumption site, and not uh, have concerns about, you know, police uh, uh, enforcement uh, do so safely for themselves with, with health officials and doctors even. Uh, in the facility, but uh, yeah, no, it, it it sounds promising. Also, in the in the in the concept of um, that second piece of of what we were already doing, but it seems the province wants to make that more official, make that part of the application process if they proceed with these CTSs or or um, consumption and treatment models. Just got a tweet uh, as you and I are having this discussion, Jay, uh, from uh, mm-hmm. Sean, who says uh, it's real important to get one because I clean the McNabb terminal. That's a few blocks away from the location we're talking about, of course. I uh, said I found four empty needle packages and three more in another bathroom garbage, unopened needles in them, uh, which I, I think just uh, I think underscores the need for this and the fact that there has to be a program in place for people like this that they know where they can go and they can feel safe. And I appreciate Sean's comment, and you are bang on. I mean. If we have close to 1,800 visits in eight months to a safe consumption site, you can easily suggest that that's close to 1,800 uh, unsafe injection sites in and around that area. So uh, we've we've mitigated that issue as well as it relates to the perception of issues uh, for public safety 
when they're around uh, unsafe injection sites. And, of course, eliminated close to 1,800 visits to this facility means the elimination of the fear of overdoses for the, uh, you know, the unfortunate users or addicted. Yeah, and, 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 and again, we were a little uptight when they, the province decided that they were going to withhold the funding for the, uh, the expansions in London and uh, down in Niagara. Uh, but it looks as if they've had a chance to evaluate this, uh, which leads us to a little bit of speculation. But let's go down that road a little ways anyway, just a block or two, if you don't mind, Jay. Nope. Uh, because one of the first questions I would have then is if the province is saying, yeah, listen, we're working on this, uh, this new protocol and I think it's going to work for you, uh, we still have to get a site for it. I mean, the temporary site is not going to work in, in the long term. And, and that's been a real roadblock for you. I mean, I thought we had a solution uh, when it was suggested that maybe one of the hospitals could, uh, could uh, you know, make some space for this. And, and they both said, thanks, but no thanks, we can't really do that, uh, which still left you high and dry. Uh, at some point, there still has to be somebody who's going to step forward and say, yeah, we can do that here. Uh, absolutely. Well, here's another piece that, that uh, we didn't know yesterday, but we can share today to CHML, and that there are three very qualified agencies, and some or you could even consider uh, local health consortia, uh, that are in the process of applying for this new CTS provincial model. Uh, all three, uh, uh, I'm sure, are aware of the problems we had uh, to start 2018 and looking for a, a place to to call home, and uh, I'm sure have... Uh, recognize that they needed to do their due diligence and, and will need to continue to do their due diligence on, on finding a facility. What I'll also share is that Hamilton Urban Corps has been a great service uh, offering all sorts of different supports to uh, this and other clientele for a few decades, essentially since the, the bus terminal closed in downtown Hamilton. And they uh, invited me and Mayor Fred Eisenberger a few months ago to a very special announcement where they are, are, are now uh, funded provincially for the most part, building a brand new facility closer to Wentworth Street off Cannon Street, uh, the old uh, Hamilton cab. Uh, more than qualified, obviously, and the current uh, providers, along with their partner, Social Health Network, and I believe the Good Shepherd, in this temporary consumption facility. And, and my guess is, although I don't want to say officially who the three agencies are, I got in trouble when I mentioned a facility some months ago that was applying uh, without permission uh, from that facility to mention it publicly. So I won't do it this time, but let's put it this way. Here's one that are, are, are ahead of the game. Uh, they're they're uh, successfully providing a, a temporary program now. I wouldn't be surprised if they are contemplating in the build that they are putting uh, forth now, breaking ground soon on at their a new location, if they wouldn't be one of the shortlisted applicants and would be building a facility that would accommodate such a use. The fact that, that the province would be behind a project like this, and, and I'm, I'm assuming that there would be you know adequate funding involved in this, uh, may just uh, enhance this and I think offer a little bit more long-lasting support for this. I, I, I had to think at the time, and I think you and I discussed this uh, when we were still looking for a permanent home for this, Jay, that, uh, that you know, potential landlords may be looking at this and saying, I'm not so sure there's going to be money for this. I don't want to get, you know, committed to this and then find out that, you know, I'm, I'm going to get stuck on, and be on the hook for the costs of some of the stuff and the utilities and everything else. But if the province is going to step up and say, yeah, this is going to be our program, uh, we'll support this, and then I, I think that assuages a lot of those concerns. Mm, that's actually a very good point. I hadn't thought of it. And, and, and Bill, the CTSs that the the province are talking about now consumption and treatment models that they're talking about now actually are all permanent in the discussion that i had with uh, the health department that's what they tell me so 
there is some security in that for would-be landlords. That's a really good point. Where's, where's council laws involved in this? I know that you've you've had to step up there when, when there were some concerns. Uh, do you feel confident now that, that, that with the province see, seemingly coming forth here, uh, with the funding and with a, a model that they can use here, that uh, the council can step back? I mean, I, I, I know this council over the last number of years, Jay, has been very, very good about uh, stepping up and saying we can't allow a program such as this to, to, to go. It, we've got to do something for that. And you've worked creatively to find solutions on this. But it would be kind of nice to know that you've got a provincial partner here that you can rely on. Well, I, if, as far as where council is, ultimately council is the board of health, so we provide that direction. Yeah, and and, and, and public health is is the number one responsibility of any councillor and of course our mayor. And so it has been near unanimous support to date. I think with the the positive statistics that we're seeing, the role that people like our partners with Hamilton Urban Core and the Social Health Network and Good Shepherd are having in partnering with our own health services and the success that they're seeing, and success means. Uh, the number of visits. People in, that are unfortunately afflicted with, with, and no one wants to be addicted to, to drugs, in particular opioids and opioid-laced and fentanyl-laced heroin and blue heroin and the issues we had there back in June that you were talking about. But the more visits we have, the more we see that, that, that it's, it, it is successful. And, and, and you know, the, the truth is going to be ultimately uh, for, for all of us on success is going to be when we see what is a crisis, uh, uh, an average of opioid-related deaths in 2017, 72% higher than the provincial average, decrease. We don't know the numbers yet. We do know that so far in 2018, uh, Hamilton paramedics have responded to, to 364 overdoses. And in just five days in October, uh, just last month, 73 people visited ERs and, and, and on drug-related issues that they claimed when they visited, Bill, 31 were suspected overdoses. So while we still have this temporary uh, 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 opportunity, let's say, for safe consumption in our community where we clearly have a crisis, we still obviously clearly have a problem. So again, it goes back to uh, what we were talking about off the top. And from, you know, Elizabeth booking me yesterday for today and doing the due diligence and talking to our health department, I'm buoyed by the fact that the province has actually done what they said they were going to do. They were really going to look at this. Uh, take it more seriously, notwithstanding some of the comments that Premier Ford had made stumping some months ago. Uh, And it appears that they're headed in the right direction. They're seeing the successes in communities like ours uh, and hopefully seeing the value and clearly still focusing on that other piece that they've been focusing on all of the time, trying to get people the treatment they need to get off the drugs in the first place. And, of course, we all want that as well. We do. Councillor Jason Farr, uh, we'll hopefully uh, get the details on this sooner than later. Jay, thanks again for the time and for the uh, the news. I really appreciate the scoop. Appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Jason Farr from uh, Ward 2, of course, down Central Downtown. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.